Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma'allamtana innaka antal alimul hakim Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala anihi wa sahbihi wa sallam So we're on I think the bottom of 67 Or We'll just go to the bottom. قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفعنا الله وإياكم بعلومه في الدارين آمين. Or sometimes I say به وبعلومه في الدارين آمين. سيدنا سيدنا عمر خليك متركز معنا سيدنا عشان نستمد منكم البركات. Shafi'i Bismillah Shafi'i radiallahu an said Should you fear That self-esteem affects your acts Remember the good pleasure of him you seek And any blessing you aspire toward And the chastisement you flee from And any element of your well-being that you are thankful for And any hardship you recollect Recollect, if you reflect upon one of these traits, your deeds of piety will appear paltry in your eyes. This seems like a funny translation. Self-esteem. Seems like it probably is uh, what we talked about last night. When we talked about last night, this uh, like uh, feeling really good about yourself. Thinking you're really special. So... Because it says, should you, fear, should you fear that this is going to affect your acts? It doesn't seem like that would be self-esteem. It seems like it's probably Uj. Um, I don't know if you know Sayyidina. He says, remember the good pleasure of him you seek, and any blessing you aspire toward, and the chastisement you flee from, and any, any element of your well-being that you are thankful for, and any hardship that you can recollect. And if you reflect on any of these, your deeds of piety will appear paltry in your eyes. And so it seems like self-esteem is not the probably best translation there. Because you're doing, you're reflecting on all of those things, so that you have humility with the things that you've done, right? So it's probably more like you're really you're proud of the things that you've done. You think, mashallah, I've finished the Quran this many times, and I've done this, and I've prayed, and so on and so forth. I prayed on time for a week, and think it, like really special. But it says if you look at all of these things, and you realize like what you're doing. When y- when you put it in the perspective of all of these other things, you realize, okay, the things that I'm doing there, I, I you know, they're humble offerings, but those humble offerings are important because of the one who receives them, inshallah. So we don't look down upon them, but we we also don't uh, try to make them bigger than they are, right? I, as long as we're looking from the angle of the deed. If we're looking from the angle of the one who's receiving the deed, then you make them big because Allah is the one who's receiving it. But if we're looking from the angle of the deed, then this is just something humble that I did. Al-Shafi'i radiallahu anhu, he said, the knowledge of one who does not safeguard his own soul will be of no benefit to him. It's a very important statement. The knowledge of one who does not safeguard his own soul will be of no benefit to him. So as we said, the big, you know, the theme that is constant in this chapter with Imam al-Ghazali is that he's, uh, you know, really, um, what's a nice way to say it? He's he's uh, making sure that the people who seek knowledge understand 
the criterion of things <laughs> and he's not making excuses for them <laughs> so he's saying the knowledge of one who does not safeguard his own soul will be of no benefit to him like okay so what you got all this knowledge but you let yourself go so what what's 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 the benefit now you know you and and we've belabored that enough to i think make it clear and he said radiallahu an the inner thought the seer of one who obeys god most high through knowledge will benefit him so the sir is literally the secret it's like that treasure that's deep inside of the heart deep inside of the soul that that innermost thought or that innermost secret of the person who obeys Allah through knowledge that's what's going to benefit them this this thing that's de- that's inside um. <coughs> it is reported that Abdul Qahir ibn Abdul Aziz a, a, a righteous man used to ask a Shafi'i radiallahu an questions about the conscious about conscientiousness and the Shafi'i accepted these questions for him because of Abdul Qahir's cons- conscientiousness it's a big word a lot of syllables one day he asked the Shafi'i radiallahu an which is preferable Patience, tribulation, or firm resolution? Shafi'i replied, Being firmly established is the rank of the prophets, and no one is established before tribulation. When one is tested, he is patient, and when he is patient, he is firmly established. Do you not see how God Most High tested Abraham, then established him firmly in prophecy? And he tested Moses, salam, then established him. And he tested Job, salam, then firmly established him. And he tested Sulaiman, then established him and granted him dominion. The best of ranks is being firmly established, as God Most High has said. And thus we established Joseph in the land. And Job, salam, after being sorely tested, was firmly established in the land, as God states. So we responded to him and removed what afflicted him of adversity and we gave him back his family and the like thereof with them as a mercy from us and a reminder for the worshippers of God so basically what he's saying is that the 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 place that you want to get is where you're firm but no one can get to a place where they're firm until they've been tried and uh, that's a really profound concept very difficult but very profound so this is why you know sometimes again the perspective the the angle at which we look at something the perspective that we bring to it is very very important because if we look at for example we have a trial and we look at the trial as this thing this horrible thing that happened to us which it probably was right or or this horrible thing that we went through or so on and so forth and the focus is just on how bad the thing was or you know like really lamenting it and so on and so forth then that will have its own consequences and its own pain and everything that comes along with it but if one can somehow adjust the perspective to say this thing that I went through um, if I can if I can work through that then this thing that I went through is a great opportunity for me to draw closer to Allah, for me to become stronger, for me to become established, to become, to you know, and it's it's very much true that like you can't, uh, things are very hard. Like things that have actual meaning are very hard to accomplish without experience. It's just uh, that's that's why that's actually one of the reasons why community is so important, and it actually it helps us the pains and the difficulties of communal life help us to figure out how to truly practice the things that we talk about. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of like really nice things, you know, <laughs> a bunch of really nice things and nice quotes and whatever. And like, you know, it's really cool, but there's no actual, like, where do you actually get tested in it? And uh, so like, you know, the patience of a person who just reads really nice quotes about patience is going to be different than the patience of the person who is dealing with people all the time and being afflicted by all kinds of things as a result of that. That's why the Prophet ﷺ said that المؤمن الذي يخالط الناس ويصبر على أذاهم خير من الذي لا يخالط الناس ولا يصبر على أذاهم That the believer who interacts with the people and has patience over the harm that comes. It's almost like the the wording of the sentence almost indicates that that's necessarily a part of the package. 
they're coming together if you're going to deal with the people you're going to have to have patience over the things that come that the, the believer who does that is better than the one that doesn't have doesn't interact with the people and doesn't have any patience over them yeah. uh, because in the end this is how we become stronger this is how we become established this is how we become firm in our faith and in the end our faith is not just like a bunch of beliefs that we want to like sing songs about and that's it right this is it's something that's meant to change the world it's something that's meant to affect actual change and without being like going through the going through the struggle of these things then we can't be established in that way and you look at the examples that he gives of all of these prophets all of these prophets went through really tremendous trials really tremendous trials and yet they were still firm that's why in the, in the books of spirituality one of the things they always say is that the best uh, the best karama or the biggest real karama or, or uh, saintly miracle is to be steadfast is to be steadfast forget all this stuff you read all kinds of stories you think like Aladdin and the flying on the magic carpet thing was it just came out of nowhere like you read all kinds of stories of miracles that people had right forget all that stuff the, the biggest miracle is you stay steadfast. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it day in and day out. If you do it day in and day out, like the person who wakes up and goes to Fajr for 30 years, there are people like that, by the way. They wake up and go to Fajr in the Masjid for like 30 years. That person, that mi the miracle of that person's Fajr for 30 years is far greater than like someone who, I don't know, picked your card out of a deck of cards or something <laughs> this discourse from Imam Shafi'i attests to his deep penetration into the mysteries of the Quran and his discernment into the stations of the travelers to God among the prophets and the saints all of which constitutes the knowledge of the hereafter so remember what we're talking about is in this context of the knowledge of, of this life and the affairs of how to regulate this life which he talks about largely as being from the field of fiqh and then the, then the knowledge of the hereafter that actually gives us some sort of rank in the hereafter Shafi'i was asked when might a man be considered to be a scholar hmm. when might a man be considered to be a scholar an alim to which he responded when he has truly mastered one field of knowledge then he knows and then turns his attention to all other fields to examine what has eluded him then he will be a scholar for it was asked of Galen, can you believe that? They have a quote of Galen. Who's Galen? Anyone? Yeah. Famous <coughs> Greek, I think, right? Yeah. Greek, like early Greek physician. So, for it was asked of Galen, you prescribe for one illness many medicines that are combinations of various elements. He replied, the objective from them is one and the same. The other compounds are used to lessen its individual effect, for one specific medicine can be deadly. So they, they master what he's saying, they master a field and then they they go into these other fields to complement that which they learned. Because if they were only to master one field, then their learning would not be complete. It would it, it could actually kill them. <laughs> Using the example of the medicines that Galen talked about. It could actually kill them. And uh this is really something also very interesting, right? So the like the standard of the standard of scholarship in the class like the the muslim tradition the standard of scholarship was that people would master multiple fields it wasn't like that wasn't even a question if you're a person of learning you master multiple fields you don't just master one field and uh it's very interesting i think that <coughs> that that results in a different uh different kind of learning this and other sayings like it are too numerous to count to testify to his lofty rank in the realization, the ma'rifah of Allah and the hereafter. Concerning his desire for the countenance of God most high through jurisprudence in particular and disputation concerning it, this is evident from that which he was, re that which he has, which he was related to have said, I wished that people could benefit from this knowledge and that nothing of it be attributed to me. This is one that takes some real thought. You know. Take some real thought. Says, this is Imam Shafi. 
So I wish that people would take this knowledge from me and that nothing of it would be attributed to me. It's <laughs> just, It's not what I'm here for. I'm not here for people to remember that it was me who said it and so on and so forth. This is challenging. Yeah, this is challenging. Someone recently just seeing if they're here. Okay. <laughs> so, so <laughs> someone recently said something to me. They were like, you know, I was talking to so and so and they said something so profound and I was like, Oh really? What was that? And then and then they told me that something that they heard from someone else that I had said like I know that that person got that from me <laughs> so I was like so I was thinking about this statement of Imam Shafi like who cares if it's attributed to you or not I was like oh yeah that's really mashallah really profound <laughs> <laughs> we should really try to do that <laughs> initially I was kind of like Oh man, all these recordings and stuff. Initially, I was kind of like, "That's the thing I said," you know. But then, I w then uh, the more I th then as I thought about it, I was like, "Well, that's kind of a dumb response." So, alhamdulillah, then I moved on. It was alhamdulillah correct. It was <laughs> correct quote. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Uh, but that's it's really amazing, right? I wish that people could benefit from this knowledge, and no nothing of it would be attributed to me. Nothing. Okay. What difference does it make if it's attributed to him or not? If if they got it from him, Allah already gave it to him. It's already written as his. It doesn't matter if the people recognize it or not, they know or not. That that again is, you know, part of that we've mentioned probably seven hundred times now. Just this this idea that one of the central concepts in Muslim thought is the idea of sitr. It's concealment. Right? It 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 manifests itself in a lot of different places. Uh course there's exceptions to that but the general the general trend is that you know one hides what they have between them and Allah because that's between them and Allah and you know don't take it too far and like ruin the world and you know all that kind of stuff but you get Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. So if we don't know what someone, what's, where something is attributed, how do we follow it? And <coughs> so this this kind of like taps on the other thing that we always talk about, the idea of splitting different, and it came up in the beginning too, differentiating the angle from which we look at something. So from the angle of he himself, he doesn't want it to be attributed to him, he doesn't care at all. But from but from the angle of the one who's learning, they have to know where they got it from. So the the two sides are different. So they, can so they can verify. It's part of our tradition. Attribution is part of our tradition. It's horrible. I see stuff online now. It's like makes me so sad. I really need to. Alhamdulillah. I, I, I used I use the adult settings to ban Facebook from my phone. So it's it's been good last couple of days, <laughs> you know. Like I put it, I put it under the adult websites that are not allowed. <laughs> like you can in the parental controls. I I just put Facebook in there, and then uh, and then now I can't now I can't look at Facebook. Like every time someone sends something, it's like WhatsApp all day long. Forward this, forward this, forward this. I tap on it. It's like this website is prohibited. <laughs> I'm like okay, alhamdulillah, moving on. But one of the things you see on there all the time is people like. There's no attribution. And they're taking the stuff from like living people that are their friends sometimes. Like they like it's their friend and the, it's an exact quote. You know, you just and it's on their page. It's not even something that like you heard somewhere else. It's like they take it from their page and they post it on their page and there's no attribution, nothing. I mean it's crazy. And Muslim you know, in like when you read the traditional poems and stuff, it's almost always you see like the first line is the who's writing it it's like stand standard practice uh, if I had memorized a lot of them I could tell you but it, that's the case in the Anfiya that's the case in like Aqidat al-Najah Qala Muhammadun Hu ibn Ja'far first line of the poem Muhammad ibn Ja'far he said the following 
he tells you who he is because like you know knowing who is saying something is very important in our tradition so we can weigh it properly and so on but uh, so it's the split he also said radiallahu <coughs> I never contested a point with anyone and wanted them to be in error. Oh my God. <laughs> I never contested a point with anyone and wanted them to be in error. And he said, an, I have never spoken to anyone without wishing that God would grant him success, guidance, support, care, and protection. And I have never spoken with anyone while caring whether God clarified the truth through my words or his. There's other narrations that say like he would he would go into a debate with someone or like a uh, conversation with someone and his intention and his du'a would be that the truth comes out on their tongue. That's remarkable. It's just, I mean, who were these people? Who were these people? I never contested a point with anyone and wanted them to be in error. Abu Hanifa, yeah. Hmm. Subhanallah. He said that Abu Hanifa also had a conversation like this with his son where he was engaging in theological debates and he kind of like was, you know, saying he shouldn't and his son said, but you you used to do it. And he said, we used to do it with the stillness as if birds were perched on our head and not hoping that the other person would make a mistake. And like you guys, you do it the other way. Actually, Abu Hanifa, some of the stories about him are remarkable because he lived in a time and a place where people are literally killing each other over these things. Like, and they would people would come to him and they'd ask him questions. They're intentional questions. They're set up. They're like you know, uh, it's like um, Seth Fuad and I were talking about that. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you come to the checkout, and they're like, "Do you want to support childhood cancer today?" Or like, "Do you want to give a donation to support childhood cancer today?" And you're like, "Uh, <laughs> if I say no." <laughs> like what, is that? <laughs> what does that say about me? You know, like so they would come and ask Abu Hanifa these questions. Maybe one day we'll get to them. But they would ask him these questions that, like, if he answers it one way, they're going to do takfir on him, and if he answers it the other way, they're going to do takfir on him, and they're going to say that they can kill him. And then he'd answer it like a third way that totally messes them up. I mean, he was brilliant. But the the point, like, people were asking him questions in that way, wanting him to get it wrong. That's how usually we do things in our community too, right? Like a lot of times we ask people questions hoping that we can catch them in something. You know, we can catch them in a little mistake and then we can chop off their legs and move on, move on to the next person. And then in the end we have no one left. He said as well, whenever I, ple whenever I presented truth and evidence to someone and he accepted it from me, it was only as a gift to him while I held firmly to affection for him. Whenever someone treated me with contempt for the truth and rejected evidence, it was only then that he was diminished in my eyes and I dismissed him. So I'm saying like, you know, this is the problem. Is if someone, you bring them truth and they just reject it. Those are the hardest. <coughs> you know, so, uh, this is like the objective truth here. And they just don't want it, you know. These clear signs attest that he, thought he sought the countenance of God alone in the practice of jurisprudence and disputation regarding, regard carefully how people follow him in any one of these five traits and then how they have deviated from him in them as well. For this reason Abu Thawr an, stated, neither I nor anyone else has ever seen the likes of a Shafi'i. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal an, said, I have not performed one of the prayers for the last 40 years without supplicating for a Shafi'i. Uh, Imam Ahmed is the fourth of the four Imams, right? Imam Shafi'i, chronologically, Imam Shafi'i is the third of the four Imams. Imam Ahmed was a student of Imam Shafi'i. They all have inter, inter, interconnections, which we've kind of talked about before. Abu Hanifa and Malik were contemporaries, they had debates with each other and stuff. And uh, 
Shafi'i was a student of Malik. Uh, Shafi'i was also a student of Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, who was one of the top students of Abu Hanifa. Ahmed was a student of Shafi'i. You know, so they're they're all interconnected. It's not like they were rival kung fu schools or something. They're all like uh, overlapping, and everything is good. You know. So he says that I haven't performed a prayer for the last forty years without supplicating for him. And this was the this was the way of people with their teachers. Abu Hanifa says the same thing about his teacher. He says that after his teacher passed away, he didn't. There's not a single prayer that passed for the rest of his life except that he made dua for him. <laughs> and he named his son after him. Yeah. Give careful regard to the fair-mindedness of the supplicant, Ibn Hanbal, and to the lofty status of the object of the supplication, who is a Shafi'i. Then compare it to the peers and equals among the scholars in these times, and the enmity and animosity between them, that you might recognize the shortcomings in their claims to follow in the footsteps of them, of those before them. Ibn Hanbal's son, seeing his habit of making supplication for a Shafi'i, asked his father, What kind of man was a Shafi'i that you make all this supplication for him? But Ibn Hanbal, it's probably the same son, but it doesn't really say. But uh, his son was one of the major people who passed on his knowledge. So he said, who, who was, What kind of man was a Shafi'i that you make all this supplication for him? Ahmed said, Oh my son, a Shafi'i was like the sun for this world and well-being for the people. He just, you know, keep shining, keep shining, keep shining. People keep benefiting, keep taking from him. Therefore consider this, is there anyone who can succeed these two? A Shafi'i and Ibn Hanbal. Ahmed also stated, everyone who lays his hand upon an ink bottle owes a Shafi'i a great debt. Imagine if you think about that. Like every time you sit down and write, you think, I owe Imam a Shafi'i. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because of like what they did. Yahya ibn Sa'id and Qattan said, I have not performed a single prayer for the last 40 years without supplicating for a Shafi'i. This is because of the knowledge God granted him and how he made him amenable to the guidance it contained. He said, then, then Ghazali says, let us restrict ourselves to this brief account of his states, for they are virtually limitless. And it's true, it is a brief account, actually. If anyone can read Arabic and you want to read about the Imams, you should read the books of Imam Abu Zahra, Sheikh Muhammad Abu Zahra, from the modern scholars. He wrote individual books on each of the four Imams, and they're very, very inspiring. It's translated, there's a book in English translated as the four Imams. It's like one volume. But the, the one volume that the four Imams is translated into is probably smaller than each of the volumes of the four Imams in the Arabic. So the translation is good, but if you can read the Arabic, it's better. He also did an entire book on Ibn Taymiyyah, an entire book on Ibn Hazm, an entire book on Jafar al-Sadiq, an entire book on uh, Imam Zaid, from also from Ahlul Bayt. Um, so he has some, they're, they're, they're very good books, mashallah. Now we go on to Imam Malik, radiallahu ta'ala an, wa'an atba'ihi, wa man salaka madhabahu, wa taba'a tariqahu, wa ahya sunnatahu, in Southern California. Amin. That's Ustad Fuad, inshallah. Say Amin. Amin. He was also adorned by these five traits of the scholar of the knowledge of the hereafter. He was asked, for example, What do you say, O Malik, about seeking knowledge? To which he responded, It is a worthy pursuit. However, fix your gaze on that which is incumbent upon you from the time you arise until the time you retire for the night and remain steadfast therein. <coughs> So he's saying, yeah, you should learn and stuff, but don't forget, focus on the things you have to know, and be steadfast in them. That's it. Don't 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 let all this seeking knowledge stuff take you away from that. He radiallahu an held the disciplines and Medin in such high esteem that when he intended to narrate hadith, he would make his ablutions, then sit on the front edge of the of the area, comb out his beard, and apply perfume, then settle into a sitting position. And with dignity and solemnity, solemn, how do you say that word in English? Solemnity? So what? Englishman. Being solemn. The practice of being solemn. God. He would narrate hadith. When asked about that, he responded, Upholding the exaltedness of the hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is very dear to me. He said as well, knowledge is light that God places wherever he wills. It is not attested to by great numbers of hadith narrations. So he's saying knowledge is light. 
it's in the heart of the people don't don't you know they can narrate narrate and narrate and narrate and narrate but knowledge is light that's in the heart of the people by the way there was a great uh, Azhari Shaykh who passed away Allah have mercy on him if we could read Surah Al-Fatiha for him Shaykh Sa'ad Jawish he was from the Muhaddithin of an Azhar, just passed away. Allah have mercy on him. A lot of the Western students that I knew studied with him. I didn't actually. So we've gone over before. I was too arrogant to take from the people that deserve to be taken from. So I was mahroom from a lot of khair. But uh, other people took from him, mashallah, and they had their uh, asa need from him and stuff. So he said, knowledge is light that God places wherever he wills. It is not by great numbers of hadith narrations. Um, which, of course, does not take away from the importance of hadith narrations. This is Imam Malik. Okay. It's Imam Malik. So he would carry himself in a way that would make you respect what he had. This was kind of like something you would see from from Maddox, and uh, you know he, he he felt that that was that was like his his way of honoring the knowledge, and making the people honor the knowledge. And uh, this is this is generally speaking a tradition of the people of knowledge, is that one of and, and it's it's actually something that causes a lot of problems in community settings, because we've come to a point where oftentimes people don't understand the perspective of the people of knowledge. Uh, don't assume that I mean that everyone As I always say Don't assume that I mean that everyone who holds an imam position Is a person of knowledge That's not the point at all But I'm saying like actual people who are very serious about scholarship They'll do things in particular ways And if you don't understand what they're doing You don't get it So you just think like they don't have something Or they don't know something Or they don't this or that Or they don't need And they actually need Like they could be in a position of great need But they're not going to tell you anything Because that would be like if they ask for anything from you then that changes your position how you're looking at them and they're a representative of knowledge so it can't be like so Imam Malik actually is instructive in that regard because he gives like some uh, some insight into the way that, that people think and this is very much still alive it's not like something that died a thousand years ago or something like the people the true people of knowledge still uphold very similar characteristics very similar character traits that there's ways that they'll do things and there are ways that they won't do things um and you know it's not necessarily a critique on everyone else but uh like for example historically there is an understanding of the difference between the people of knowledge and storytellers you know there's ulama and there's qusas and they're two different categories of people And the, everyone loves the Qusas Because they're great storytellers They make you happy and they tell you stories And like everyone feels good and whatever But they're not the people of knowledge And the people of knowledge are not going to act the way that the storytellers act Storytellers are basically like pre-modern versions of marketing Right? Like all this extreme marketing that we do now Around all of like Dean It's kind of weird So And it, it causes a lot of problems so uh, you know these They were like that But this, the people are always going to be the way that the people are And this is the thing The people are always like that and, But the people of knowledge They're not like that <laughs> It's just the way that it, you know, The Prophet them is going to carry himself The way that he's going to carry himself Regardless of what other people want and think and so on And it even happened to Abu Hanifa There's a story of his where <coughs> His mother like Had an issue that came up And she needed an answer for it and uh, she doesn't. She doesn't listen to her son. <laughs> it's like the way it is always. <laughs> With your family, it's different. So she's not going to listen to her son. So he's like, okay. So who do you want to go ask? And she's like, I want to go ask so and so, who's a who's a storyteller. He's not like a person of knowledge. So Abu Hanifa, of course, he's not going to say anything because that's his mom. He's not going to say, oh, you should be asking me. You shouldn't be asking them. And so no, it's my mom. I do what she wants me to do. She wants to go ask that person, we'll go ask that person. So they go to that person's house and he knocks on the door, you know. And he's like, Oh, Imam Abu Hanifa, you're here. Like, what can we do for you? And so on and so forth. He's like, My mom has a question. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and the guy's like, uh, Like, you know, and he's like, Yeah, it's my mom. She has a question, you know. 
And he's like, okay, so like, what's the answer? You know, like he, <laughs> he gets the answer from him, he tells his mom. But like, that's, you know, people are going to be people. SubhanAllah. The stories, she liked the stories. He told good stories. <laughs> the other thing that they always say is that the storytellers, the beef that the ulama always had with the storytellers too, is that the storytellers embellish things. They're not really accurate in the way that they tell things and the way that they, they, the information that they pass and so on and so forth. So they would always be upset with that. Um, but anyways, Imam Malik, back to Imam Malik, radiallahu ta'ala an. Uh, after this section, inshallah, Sayyidina, if you have anything to add, like from the stories or from the fawa'id of Imam Malik, inshallah, please do so. Um, <coughs> his desire for the countenance of God Most High, which he sought through knowledge of the hereafter, is well attested to his saying, dialectics and religion have no place. So he was very like, he didn't like theoretical talk, Imam Malik. It doesn't mean that there's like necessarily no place for it, but that was his position, especially in his time and where he lived and so on and so forth. He lived in Medina. His approach in Medina is very, very different than the approach maybe in some other places. <coughs> But he was very much like, you know, we don't need these things. A Shafi'i statement also demonstrates this. I witnessed Malik being questioned on 48 matters. He responded to 32 of them with, I do not know. This is a really, really important one as well. And they say, in some of the narrations of this, they say that a man was sent by his people from North Africa to Malik in Medina. So he traveled all the way from North Africa to Medina. And he comes to Malik because Malik is the imam of the time. So he comes to Malik and he has his list of questions and he starts asking him the questions and to a good chunk of them Malik says I don't know I don't know I don't know I don't know and the guy's like my people sent me to come and ask Imam Malik what the answers to these questions are what should I tell them when I go back to my when I go back to them he said you tell them that you came and you went to Imam Malik and Imam Malik said I don't know yes <laughs> that's all there is to it what it was that's I don't know if I don't know I don't know if he knows he's going to tell him but if he doesn't know he's not going to say Whoever seeks other than the countenance of God with his pursuit of knowledge will not permit himself to admit that he has no knowledge of a topic. This explains why Shafi'i said, when the scholars are mentioned, Malik is the star that pierces through the darkness. There is no one that I have benefited from more than Malik. He keeps bringing Shafi'i in. <laughs> it's good to have love for your imam. It has been narrated that Abu Jafar al-Mansur forbade him Malik from relating hadith dealing with the topic of divorce pronounced under compulsion. So it's narrated that there's this issue, right? What if someone divorces someone else and they're forced to? Like someone comes to you and they put a gun to your head and they tell you divorce your wife right now. And you divorce your wife. Does that divorce count or not? This is the question. This is the question. So then th he told him that he can't talk about this. Then Al-Mansur conspired to send someone to ask Malik about just this matter. Okay. He thus narrated before a large assembly of people, there is no divorce incumbent upon one who is compelled. Whereupon he, Malik, was whipped by the governor of Medina, but did not renounce the narration of hadith. So he's, he, he's not going to not say anything. And he, he was punished for it. Malik said, A person who is truthful in his speech, not lying, will have the benefit of his mental faculties. And in later life, he will not be afflicted with infirmity or feeble-mindedness. A person is truthful, they don't lie, then their mind will stay strong. His asceticism toward this is his conclusion. You don't have to listen to it and be like, well, modern science doesn't say that. And I'm, you know, I read the medical research on this. What you, know, you just, what's the, what's the point? Be truthful in your speech. <laughs> yeah. His asceticism toward the worldly life is clear from a report that says Al Mahdi, the Amir al Mu'minin, the third Abbasid Caliph, asked him one day whether he owned a house or not. To which he replied, No, but I will relate to you that I heard Rabia ibn Abi Abdurrahman say, A person's lineage is his house. He <laughs> said, so I don't have a house, but a person's lineage is their house. Harun al-Rashid asked him if he owned a house, to which he responded, no. So he gave him 300,000 dinars and said, buy a house with it. It's a lot of money. He took it and did not spend any of it. 
Then when Ar-Rashid decided to travel from Hijaz to Iraq after completing the pilgrimage, he said to Malik, who resided in Medina, you should depart with us, for I propose imposing the injunctions of Al-Muwatta, his work, on the population in the same manner in which Uthman standardized the Qur'an. So what is happening? He's saying, when I go, the, the way Uthman an, compiled the Qur'an, and he said, this is the reading of the Qur'an. Right? Everyone agreed upon it. Obviously, it wasn't just like he chose. He's now, now time has passed, and this Khalifa is saying, we're going to take your book of fiqh, which is a completely different issue than the Qur'an, right? We're going to take your book of fiqh, and we're going to force everyone to follow your book. So what did Malik say? He said, as far as imposing al muwatta on the people, there is no way to accomplish this, because the companions of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, have scattered through the lands after he died and narrated hadith. Every land has its particular knowledge and scholarly tradition, and the Messenger of God related, the differing opinions of my community are a mercy. So he's saying, no, that's not the way it's going to go. We don't force one opinion on the people. The people have their various approaches to how to understand the hadith and the Qur'an, and those are acceptable, and we're not going to force it on everyone else. As far as my leaving with you, there is no way to move forward on this, for the Messenger of Allah stated, Medina is better for them if they but knew it. He also stated, Medina clean, cleanses its impurities like the bellows of the blacksmith eliminate impurities from iron. Here are your dinars just as they were. Take them if you like or leave them. The money that he gave him, he was like, look, I'm not going with you and you're not applying my book on everybody. And here's the money you gave me. If you want to take it, take it. If you don't want to take it, don't take it. <laughs> That's it. 300,000 dinars. Here Malik meant you intend to oblige me to leave Medina on account of the munificence you have shown me, but I will not favor this world over the city of the Messenger of Allah So what is he saying? Saying now you think that you gave me all this money, you can tell me what I'm going to do? Here's the money. Do whatever you want to do. I'm not leaving the city of the Prophet This is the point I was saying about how he was like very particular about uh, the relationships. When great wealth from all... All directions of the world came to him as a result of the widespread dispersal of his knowledge and his companions. He distributed it in worthy ways. His munificence attests to his asceticism in relation to this world and the little love he had for it. For asceticism is not solely an absence of wealth. On the contrary, it is the emptying of the heart. Sulaiman with all his dominion was among the ascetics. So it's the issue of how is the heart dealing with it? How is the heart dealing with it? He didn't have any connection to it. There's a statement of Shaykh Abdul Qadr al-Jilani rahimahullah ta'ala uh, where he said that I wish if I was given all of the wealth in the world so that I could give it to the people who are in need. I, I would take all of it and I would give all of it. <laughs> and just take it from everyone, give it to everyone who needs it. It's not going to stay in his hands. Malik's disdain for this world is well illustrated in the account related by a Shafi'i who said, I saw at Malik's door a string of fine mounts steeds from Khurasan and mules from Egypt, the likes of which I had never beheld before. So I said to Malik, how handsome they are. He said, they are a gift from me to you, O Abu Abdullah. To which I responded, leave yourself one of them as a mount you might ride upon. He replied, I would feel shame before God were I to tread the ground in which lies the Prophet them with the hoof of a beast of burden. He wouldn't ride these things in Medina. He wouldn't ride in Medina. They say also, I've heard before that he would walk he would walk uh, in so far as he could without his shoes in Medina, in the whole area of Medina. Have you heard that, Sayyidina? Because um, this is where the Prophet them is buried. I was just reading, you know, about in, in preparation for Umrah, and one of the things it was saying was that, you know, you one has to hold in their heart that when they go to Medina, I mean, there's some beautiful etiquette, subhanAllah. Like there's the verse that says that when you when tells the companions when you go to the Prophet them to call upon him and and so on, then give some charity before you go to him. So they said that when you enter the city of Medina, before you even get to the masjid of the Prophet them, you should make you should give sadaqah. And then you go into the masjid of the Prophet them and you give salam to him because you're supposed to give sadaqah first. And when you and when you go to uh said you know that Mecca is the most beloved place on earth. And Medina is the next beloved place after Mecca. But the piece of earth that holds the body of the Prophet ﷺ is the greatest place in all of existence. Because the Prophet ﷺ was the greatest of all of Allah's creations. He said, uh, the place that holds the body of the Prophet ﷺ, he said, بِإِجْمَعَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ By the consensus of the Muslims, 
They said the place that holds the pl body of the Prophet them is better than paradise. Is better than the Arsh. Is better than because it holds the Prophet them and the Prophet them is better than he's the best of all creation. So Madik had this rule and like this is the way he would deal with Medina. You see people like that still. So, you know. Like they won't raise their voice in Medina. They won't they'll walk certain ways in Medina. They say that the 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 marble area around the masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the and the gates and stuff, this represents more or less what the city of Medina was in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu So as soon as you enter that area now you're in Medina to Nabi like as it was Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Behold Malik's munificence, he bestowed all of that at once. And behold his reverence for the very ground of Medina. His aspiration for the countenance of Allah through knowledge of the hereafter and his disdain for this world is well attested to in this statement narrated from him in which he said, I entered upon Harun al-Rashid and he said to me, O Abu Abdullah, you must visit us here in the palace frequently so that our young people may hear and learn the muwatta from you. Malik continued by saying, May God honor the commander of the faithful. This knowledge emerged from you, Quraysh, originally. If you hold it in high esteem, you will be held in high esteem. And if you demean it, you will be demeaned. He said, you have spoken the truth. Depart uh, for the mosque so that you can hear and learn with the people. So he, he was very particular, radiallahu anh, you know. He was also madik, for example, like if he came into a gathering, he would sit at the head. And he didn't do, none of these things were like out of arrogance, you know, but they're out of principle. Like he's going to sit at the head of the gathering. And, uh, you know, a lot of things like these stories of there's stories of Harun al-Rashid and others said, like, they asked him, come to Iraq where the, khila where the Khilafah was, right? Come over here so that you can teach, you can teach us and you can teach the children and so on and so forth. And he said, I don't go to anyone. If you want to learn, you come to me. So that's the rule. It's not the learn the this whole, like, you know, uh, subhanAllah, this is the way these people were. If you want to learn, you come to me, and it's a it's a, it's a very important principle, you know. It, it and sometimes like money messes with these things. So I remember like when we were uh, uh, studying Arabic, for example, our teachers in Arabic had no qualms about making sure that we understood that whether or not the fact that we're paying them money for the class means nothing to them. Right, like you know, like I've said before, our one of our Arabic teachers, he, if we came to class, I mean, first of all, he'd work all day, and he taught us from four to nine p.m. So he'd leave his house in the morning, go to his day job, finish his day job on the other side of the city, take bus. He's blind, legally blind, albino. Take buses all the way to the other side of the city and teach us from four to nine p.m. And then I have to go all the way back. We're in Medina Nasr. Medina Nasr is like the total east side of Cairo. And he lives on the end of Giza on the west. Like the literally the last stop on the metro. On the other side of the city. And he can't see. Right? And it's like... So he'd come to class. Of course he's tired. If we didn't do homework, he'd just be like, Alright, do your homework and you take a nap. <laughs> he wouldn't be like, No, you're paying me. I'm going to teach you. And so he's like, No, you didn't do your work. I'm going to take a nap. Go ahead. Do your work. <laughs> you, know, like you, you came here to learn, didn't you? I can't teach you if you didn't do your work. Go ahead, do your work. I'm taking a nap. <laughs> I'll make it easy for him. I talked to him a couple of days ago, and he's he hasn't been able to go back to Egypt for five years. And uh, so his son just graduated college, you know. So it means he missed all of college, probably missed high school graduation, missed everything because he can't go back. Allah make it easy for him. But he used to do funny stuff. Like one time, we had been studying with him for months. And, uh, you know, five hours a day for months is a lot. And then, you know, usually still, they wouldn't let me give you qama or anything like that when it's a lot of time. It's like everyone's in their little class and then everyone's going to pray together. The teachers will give you qama and they'll like do those things. So one time we came, we missed the like jama'ah, so he asked me to make iqama. So I make iqama. It's always Egyptians too, they're khafif al They're like, uh, they're really uh, good at joking. <laughs> <laughs>
So, you know, we pray, make iqama, he, he does Allahu Akbar, we pray, everything else finishes. We're walking back to the classroom and he looks at me and he's like, he's like, I've been teaching you all these hours, <laughs> all these days. <laughs> he's like, Wala tazalu la tuhsinu illa iqama. I was like, uh, Alhamdulillah. He's like, I've been teaching you all this time and you still can't make the iqama properly. <laughs> what are you going to do? He's right. He's right. But, you know. So they, they like wouldn't, m but money messes with these things. You know? So you come, to the, you come to the class and you're like, well, I paid this money for the class. Like, it better start on time. They'd purposely come late. They don't even care. Be like, look, sometimes you'd be so late to class. You'd be like, Ustad, you know, it's really late. <laughs> you know? He's like, look, I left when it's reasonable for me to believe that I need to leave in order to get there. <laughs> and this is Cairo. And he's right. He's like, this is Cairo. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than you reasonably expected to take. So I'm late, you know. Sorry. Okay. Sometimes teachers just come late. Like, what do you, if, if, if I come late, you don't want to learn from me anymore? Okay, then you don't actually care to learn from me. So I'm not like, I'm not like your child. If you want to learn, then have some patience and learn. This is the way these things are. It's a totally different culture. Totally different culture than America. So I'll stop here on Imam Malik, inshallah. Next time we'll go to Imam Abu Hanifa, radiallahu ta'ala anhum ajma'in. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina Ustad, do you have anything to add uh, about Imam Malik's fada'il or his virtues or anything? Any stories? Any favorite stories of Imam Malik that come to mind or anything about Imam Malik's character that you if it resonates uh, in particular? Because there's a lot that wasn't mentioned, right? I know there's stuff. They're <laughs> just being <laughs> humble. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of things. One of the things that is, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I connected to this particular methodology was because he was seen as the scholar's scholar, uh, and yet he transcended that, and it's a part and parcel of his methodology. So embodied knowledge to him was a big deal, which is the reason why he took the city of Medina and the practice of the people of Medina to be equivalent to mutawatir hadith. So to him, it was like an elevated hadith. And um, it's indicative of the idea that religion is passed down through people. There was a story that a man came and said, you know, debate me, which he kind of touched upon. And Imam Malik said, you know, what do I get out of that? Mm. And he said, well, if I win, if you win, then I'll follow you. And he said, okay, and then what if you win? He goes, and then you'll follow me. Goes, ah. So what if a third person comes and then he debates and then he wins? He said, oh, then we'll follow him. And he said, look, you're you're going to have a different religion every day of your life yeah. with that methodology. True. As far as what I know, I don't need to debate it. Mm. And that line, I think, is very important because we oftentimes might debate things in that nature of jadal uh, because we don't actually, we're testing it. Like, is this really sound knowledge or not? And so we kind of debate it back and forth. Are we gonna, is it going to be sound to you? Mm. But if you don't need that, like if you actually have complete certainty mm. in what it is that you know, there's no real need to debate with people about what you know and what they know. And so you become a much more relaxed in that sense. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really part of the problem. That's it. Afiduna. Afiduna. Spill, spill. I mean, adab was a big pour, deal pour from your, from the waters of your learning adab upon was us. A big deal and that, that as well is you can see the, alongside not walking with the shoes on, never rode an animal in the city of Medina. When people came to his home, they would knock and ask, you know, ask him 
shows you again his status. He did not like the Pasof. He did not like people who told stories. Um, and not them personally, but just the methodology himself. And so, you know, he was aggressive, but it's aggressive in the sense that people understand. Like, they have respect for him and awe in that sense. So he would say, like, we would throw our sandals at these people who would come into the message of the Prophet and think that they can tell stories. So he elevated everything. You know, he's a person that they said, when we saw him, we were in complete awe of him. Mm -hmm. He was really tall, had a white complexion, he had blue eyes. So as an Arab, he's like very, I mean, he sticks out. Um, and people said when they saw Malik, they saw Malik. Mm -hmm. Like you, you like the, when he entered a room, it was like the whole room was now fixated on Malik. And I think all of us have met people like that before. Where it's just without them even speaking, sometimes it's just they have such an awe-inspiring, you know, energy around them that you're just constantly wondering like what they're doing, what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and this was him. You know that that notion that you talked about in the beginning about the you know the the caliph at the time who had instructed him not to recite the hadith. You know at that time the state had told him um, that those who don't give their pledge to the Khalifa they would be uh, considered divorced to their wives. Mm. And so the state now is trying to get in to religious edicts and sort mm -hmm. of use that as a tool for people to give them the pledge. And Medic was seen as a person who fought against this. And so he would still recite those hadith and he would still make sure that people knew that no. If you don't give your pledge to the Khalifa, there's other things, but that doesn't mean that you're gonna change the religion of the Prophet. It was something that it wasn't true. So and he wasn't afraid to do that. Figure if I wait long enough, he'll just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kanu ajalla min al muluki jalalatan. Yeah. Wa azu sultanan wa afkhama madhara. That's what Ahmed Shoki said about the ulama of al Azhar, but it's true about all of the ulama. They were, it says they were more glorious than uh, than the kings. And they were more powerful than the sultans, and they were more uh, impressive, and 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 their appearance was even more impressive than them as well. You know, these people were like that line of and Busiri when he talks about the prophets and Allah who they send them that we saw last Thursday about like the 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 prophets I send them when he appears by himself, your impression as if he is surrounded by an army because of how. Magnificent he was, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You know, that's what these people were like. He started at an early age, man. That it, and you know, the story goes that his mother gave him a ghusl and then she put him in the best of clothing and put a turban on his head and told him to go study with the scholar who was going to be able to give him uh, an understanding of proper adab, decorum. And so he studied with Rabbi Al-Rai, mm -hmm. who was a great scholar, who he said he learned, I don't know from. He said, I learned La Adri and Rabbi al mm -hmm. And that, to him, is what made uh, a real scholar, is the ability to just be honest with the things that they don't know. He wasn't actually somebody who he considered to be knowledgeable, like the way that his brother was in the beginning. And he said that that made him more uh, competitive. His father once came to him and said, "Like your brother knows a lot of a hadith," and that got to him. <laughs> <laughs> so he, you know, progressed forward in that way. 
Nadia was his mother. And I think it's important to say her name too because that's why we have somebody like him. Mm-hmm. Thank you for obliging me. Uh, we'll take just a couple minute break and then we'll we'll start the the other paper, inshallah, Dr. Almost paper. So take a couple minutes, get some tea, coffee, whatever you want, and then we'll come back. <coughs>